0: From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's forward thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet
1: Bush. Janet, when you think of the business response to climate change, what kind of companies do you immediately think of?
2: Well, energy companies, oil and gas, mining, I mean, they're the ones that immediately come to mind. I mean, obviously, they need to migrate to clean types of energy if the transition is to be a reality. But I guess this involves every individual and every company in some way.
1: Indeed. And the role of finance is going to be critical. According to our own MGI research on the net zero transition, capital spending on physical assets for energy and land use systems in the next 30 years needs to be about $275 trillion. That's equivalent to about half of all corporate profits in 2020 on an annual basis. Financial institutions, in particular, have a pivotal role to play in supporting large-scale capital reallocation.
2: Well, in that context, we're delighted to have our colleague Jonathan Wurzel as our guest host. He's in conversation with a U.S. financier who has a great deal to say about the net zero transition and about sustainability. So let's hand over to Jonathan.
0: I'm here with our esteemed alumnus, Ron O'Hanley, the president and CEO of State Street Corporation, one of the world's largest servicers and managers of institutional assets. Uh, It's fair to say that Ron has been walking the talk when it comes to sustainable, inclusive growth. He's deeply involved in industry efforts around climate, around corporate governance, diversity and inclusion. He leads the task force for asset managers and asset owners as part of the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is aimed at deploying institutional capital to accelerate the transition to a net Zero world. He also has a leadership role at focusing capital on the long term uh, and is a guardian of the Council for Inclusive Capitalism. So we're very pleased to have him today for a conversation about sustainable inclusive growth. Thank you and welcome, Ron. Ron, uh, let's start with talking about sustainability. Last year, you committed to make State Street's portfolios carbon neutral by 2050, and and you said that that will be a hard thing to do. Tell us more about that and what what it will take for you to get there.
1: Well, we we have made that commitment and, you know, we've made it for a couple of reasons, but primarily we are a very long-term investor, almost by definition in in the public markets. If your portfolios are index dominated, as long as a company is in the index, we're gonna be invested in that company. So for, for us, uh, given the, the long-term nature and the long-term value creation that we think is associated with uh, climate-friendly portfolios, this was an important commitment to make. The reason I said it was hard is that you know as much work has been done. There's it's actually still fairly basic today. You think about the levers that we have. Uh, one is engagement uh, with company boards and management, and that's more than just jawboning. It is really trying to understand what's going on and using our oversight function and stewardship to figure out where they are. Second is selective divestment, basically saying, I'm no longer gonna own this. Again, limited in an index portfolio, you can do that. Uh, third is you know, enhancing the cl- uh, carbon profile of the portfolios, basically by saying, we're not just gonna divest, but we're gonna go towards those low carbon or those you know from a carbon perspective, well behaving companies. And then, lastly, is is its advocacy, both public advocacy and then advocacy around reporting. Reason why this is difficult is one, you know, there's really not a agreed upon methodology yet to calculate carbon best, uh, baselines and targets. The world is getting closer on that. COP made some real advances there that we can talk about if you'd like. But there's still not a whole lot of data that's available such that one can definitively say. Now, I've lowered my carbon portfolio by this. But having said that, we are working at it in our active portfolios, we've already factored and have long factored ESG and climate risk into what we're doing. In our passive portfolios, as I said, our real option there is to engage with companies and to get them you know, moving towards the right place. We're working with others in the industry because this is one case where we're all in the same boat and we're all aligned. And it's not just asset managers and asset managers, but also the owners of the assets. So this is one place where we're working very closely. It's hard work, it's not impossible work. It's something that I think it's important that the uh, industry work towards.
0: Claire, but you mentioned COP and uh, advances that were made there and changes that happened. You were at Glasgow. Maybe we'll just uh, go into that a little bit more in terms of both on the financial disclosure side and any other observations on how that's affected the climate agenda more broadly and specifically
1: for State Street. Yeah, I mean, notwithstanding some of the media that you've seen come out of COP, I, I've do believe there were some real advances? You know, sure, the statement at the end wasn't what people wanted, but you know, COP went on for two weeks, and there was a lot of work in the run-up to it. And there's a couple of things I would talk about. You know, one was the deal between China and the United States to work together on reducing emissions, carbon market. I'll talk about that. The the new standards now around you know how to think about ESG reporting and some harmonization, because if even in the run-up to COP, what was clear that the, the business community worldwide had, had reached its tipping point. And by that, I mean that there's very, very little, this can't happen, we can't do this, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this and much more around, What do we need to do? And let's get consistency of standards around this. So the new International Sustainability Standards Board was established really to start to bring together all of the different accounting standards and develop a baseline of global standards. The agreement of China and the US to basically abide by that is actually a very big deal. And to say, okay, what comes out of that, we'll use as and and incorporate that into the accounting standards of our countries there was just much less talk about here's the risks of climate and much more on what are we going to do about it and again i think that was a a very big and important uh change there was movement beyond emissions and emissions are very important but also much more discussion on biodiversity and kind of uh for lack of a better term nature as a capital investment than i've seen before uh and that's very important 22 countries, 23, I think actually made commitments to phase out coal uh, and to stop funding coal. The focus on methane, you know, methane's a big deal. It doesn't get the same kind of attention it does. 105 countries joined the methane pledge. And this was a US and EU led kind of thing. And then even on the carbon markets, while it hasn't, we haven't gotten to the point yet where select countries, particularly the ones that matter, like the US and China have Uh, or or agreed on a carbon price or carbon pricing mechanism, they all came together in terms of, you know, what the framework for that is, which I think ultimately is where we need to get to, right? Ultimately carbon needs to be priced in as an externality. And while we didn't get there, we've made some progress there. And then lastly, I would say the role of India. You know, everybody's Mm -hmm. complaining India didn't do enough, but they joined it. They joined the club. And I think that's actually quite important because as we think about this global problem that we have called climate and carbon remediation, India has to be part of, of the solution here. So all in all, could it have accomplished more? Yes. Did it accomplish a whole lot more than people are talking about? Yes. And maybe the most important thing is that usually these things happen and there's the great silence afterwards. Well, there's a lot of work underway about, you know, what are we doing next? What are we going to do before Egypt, you know, COP 27? So I don't think anybody views this as anything more than a milestone on the way to getting to where they need to be in terms of anybody serious about this.
0: Uh, that's that's great to hear. And I think uh, we share the view that a lot was done, um, particularly sort of the net zero principle as an operating principle for corporate for companies globally. So really, really there now in terms of the boardrooms focus. Maybe talk a bit about then about what the work that has been done is, is getting done. At State Street, you made a lot of acquisitions uh, to help uh, your, your clients and tools to help track and score how companies are managing their carbon emissions. Thoughts
1: you could share on that? At State Street, we have basically we're a fairly straightforward company. We have two businesses. One is an asset management business, which has been on the forefront of this now for a while and all the things that I've talked to you before about. Our larger business about 80 percent of what we do is investment servicing in other words we help asset managers and asset owners with their portfolio everything from at the back end custody and accounting all the way to pre-trade risk analytics the trade itself post-trade compliance uh the risk analysis and performance measurement around a, a portfolio and what's happened is the the center of attention has moved to that which is okay back 10, 12 years ago, just a few asset managers are thinking about this. Now everybody is, and they're all saying, okay, but I need tools. We've developed some tools inside what we call ESG risk analytics to help clients address either the the regulatory requirements that they're gonna be put under, or the own, their own requirements that they're putting on their portfolios. If they've taken an investment view and now have a policy that says X, that has to be incorporated into their post-trade compliance. We've also developed some tools in terms of financial disclosures and how do we think about you know, measuring the carbon intensity of a portfolio. There's some great, great firms out there that are doing terrific stuff. S&P Global would be one. They have a true cost product that we've now incorporated into our ESG analytics to take what we think is a real state-of-the-art kind of uh, bit of analysis and incorporate it into broader ESG analysis. And then more recently, because remember, most of the world focuses on uh, when they have these discussions on public investment, but private investment is at least the same size now, if not bigger than public markets. And so how do you think about as an investor what you hold in uh, private equity, private credit, et cetera, So earlier this year, we bought a firm named Mercatus, which is basically a data management provider for private market managers. And we're using that to basically bootstrap the same kinds of tools that we use for ESG and public markets uh, for uh, for private markets.
0: Well, that's that's first of all a a lot of advances and methodologies that didn't exist before. But you also mentioned that part of this is about your decision made, part of it is about engaging with the portfolio companies and with your uh, with, with your investees. So maybe speak a bit about that. What are you telling them, or how do you help them shape a more compelling and high impact sustainability strategy?
1: So let me speak about it first, you know, in terms of how we engage with the portfolio company we're the first to admit that um we are not management of these companies and ultimately management and the board of these companies knows what's the right thing to do so what we take this from the approach firstly of what is the board doing and what is the board doing from its oversight perspective and what we ask the board is what are you asking your management on this we take it from the vantage point of long term if you think about index investing, it really is long-term investing, right? As long as the companies in the, in the uh, index will be invested in it. And so we make that point to these portfolio companies that we're thinking about this in 5, 10, 15 year horizons here. And how are you thinking about it from that perspective? What we then urge companies to do is say that uh, recognize you don't have all the answers and, but you know, part of your job and part of your role is to working with others to figure out who's got those answers. So what we ask the board is, How are you thinking about this? You know, what's the data that you're receiving from management? You know, recognizing that ESG data is fragmented and it's not complete, you know, what are you doing to, you know, try to fill that in? What are you doing to make judgments of the data that may in fact itself be uh be incomplete? And then lastly, we really do focus on governance. Think of the the climate side of ESG is nothing more than a risk, right? And you and I sitting here, you know, i sitting here in Boston looking out the window. I don't know what's gonna happen to sea level, sea levels in 20 years from now, 30 years from now, but is there a risk that it could be different? Absolutely. And so it's thinking about climate how it factors how an investor looks at your company in terms of what is the climate risk that's embedded in this company or could be embedded in this company and how do I think about it and that's how you then need to feed back to your investors in terms of here's how we're thinking about it you know we own real estate in lots of coastal cities and this is what we're going to do about it or you know we're tied to a supply chain that uses these ports that you know has uh, you know perhaps some risk in the future so rather than this kind of debate around a point certain sea level rise means this or you know the temperature is going to rise to this it's like any other risk you know the definition of risk is more things can happen than will happen so understanding that range of things that can happen and what are you doing to either as management to management or as the board to oversee it
0: Makes a lot of sense, and uh, in in the world of, of climate, very few things are certain. So that better information base will definitely, I think, create a better conversation uh, with uh, with the board and and ultimately with management. So great. One of well, one of the things that very few people saw coming was uh, was of course a pandemic. So turning to inclusivity a little bit last year, you wrote that like a bolt of lightning against a night sky. COVID nineteen has dramatically illuminated vulnerabilities and linkages that we as a society can no longer afford to ignore True words could you perhaps tell us a bit about those linkages as you see them and and, and how to address them? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that the multiple crises uh, that started in 2020, but first and foremost, the pandemic really did highlight both strengths and weaknesses that are in the public and private sectors. And I think it also highlighted the linkages and connections between corporate resilience and ESG. If, if you think about it, sitting prior to march of 2020 you know would we have imagined that in fairly short order we'd be seeing all sorts of shortages of basic household items including Food, right? Would we have thought about that? And I don't think that, you know, what we've done is we've optimized supply chains, but not with an eye towards resiliency and vulnerability. And you have to ask yourself, right, why were so many developed countries in the 21st century, you know, unprepared for an epidemic that turned into a pandemic? You know, I can't think of a country in the world that can thump its chest and say, yep, our public health system did exactly what it was meant to do. You think about the short shortages suffered by hospitals, governments and all and manufacturers as they were trying to respond to all this. What it's highlighted is that as as we think about risk and as we think about capital in the broadest use of that term, we as a society, I think, need to think differently. You know, in some respects, the you know, my part of the world, the banking world, got its wake-up call and its knock on the head back in 2008. And, you know, the regulatory response in most parts of the world was swift and said that, you know, this was a system that was running with way, way too little capital, and we can no longer uh, afford to do that. And so, you know, you've got a system now, and, you know, I, I think it's properly capitalized, What I know is it's way more capitalized than it was in the past. And it's not so much for, it's to protect us from X, but it's to protect us from a range of things that that can happen going back to the risk thing. And I think that as we think about industries and as we think about the response Uh, various governments. I mean, there was a giant, giant bailout that went on in all sorts of different forms there. And, you know, we can say that's okay. You know, I don't think we really know the fallout of this yet in terms of what it's meant to government debt. But, you know, not to pick on them, but I would just ask, how can we have a situation where the airlines kind of every 10 years or so, you know, go through some kind of crisis and need some kind of a of a bailout, you know, you go back to nine eleven, you go back to the financial crisis, and now you go to this. And again, very important employers, big user I use of airlines. I'm just making the point as an illustration that we need to be thinking about what resilience really needs. And at some point, who's going to pay for that? You know, should it be the the shareholder? Should it be the customer? Should it be government? You know, my vote is a combination of the shareholder and customer, right? If if I want to have a plane available to me, you know, and I want to have you know the convenience of planes, and if the airline needs to, you know, run more, uh, carry more capital to make it through those kinds of things, I as a customer probably do need to pay for that uh, in the cost of the ticket. So I, I'm using that as a as, as an illustration of of really how this highlighted the link between preparedness and these ESG kinds of factors. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, as serious as the, to tie it back to the climate theme, as serious as this pandemic has been, as Rebecca Henderson at HBS has said, you know, Covid was the pop quiz. Climate is the real final exam. In terms of, Mm. you know, are we prepared for that? And have we built in enough resiliency, both in terms of new technology, but also adaptability to, you know, what some believe is going to be inevitable here? So I think that's how you get these these kinds of linkages there.
0: I can see the risk theme coming through. Sort of having that broader view on what's possible and investing to be prepared for that. Let me ask one other question sort of related. I think that this around the, the on the active side in particular, you, you are of course, you know, building capabilities and sustainability. You've also been investing in uh, areas for economic and social benefit, uh, including uh, affordable housing, a topic near and dear to MGI. I'd love to know more about how you think about that active investing
1: side and sort of in how how that creates economic value. We are strong believers in the economic benefits of affordable housing. I mean, I think that you know it's it's really basic. You know, you 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 feed you, you ensure that people can feed themselves, that they can provide themselves shelter, and they have a job. And those things, by the way, are very much related. And what we're finding increasingly is that we have this somewhat destructive cycle of attractive areas to live, people flock to it, employers flock there because people wanna be there, not enough housing is built, the cost of housing goes up, homelessness goes up, and all of a sudden the place isn't quite that attractive anymore. And you know, you've know, you seen this cycle occur on the West Coast, You know, some would argue that it's happening in places like Austin now. And so in our mind, it's just very, very important Important that we think about mechanisms to, to grow affordable housing. You know, we do it through, you know, we're a credit extender. We're not a big one relative to most, but we're a credit extender. We do it through some you know, municipal finance activities. But the other way I think that society really needs to think about this is, you know, how they think about zoning. I mean, it's, it's an, an irony that if you look in many parts of the world that on the one hand, people say, yeah, we need more affordable housing, but through zoning and zoning restrictions, restrictions, it actually makes it very hard to put in things like affordable housing. So it's very important here. You're not going to break this cycle uh, and you're not going to create the virtuous cycle without being able to do uh, to bring together this idea of food, shelter and jobs. Words come very
0: close to my heart, Ron, thank you. Uh, so, well, none of this is going to be possible without growth. And we're going to need to, you know, all of the, the motive engine of capitalism still needs to tick over. And maybe say a few more things about where you see growth for, for State Street. What are the top opportunities in your mind? Uh, I know you've recently sort of made a big sort of set of moves around digital finance. It would be, it would be great to hear a bit of more of your thoughts about how growth comes out of this
1: yeah so um we're we're in a very competitive industry on the other hand you know our, our our little patch of the uh of financial services so on the one hand it's very competitive and you know lots of pressure on pricing on the other hand it's just got some great built-in fundamentals. You know, we're tied to markets and investments, and financial markets typically grow at a multiple of underlying economies. So as long as you believe economies will continue to grow, financial markets tend to grow at at some multiple of that. So given that, and, and given that you've seen, and as wealth grows, and as wealth, more importantly, broadens, and you see growth in middle class who move from just in, in, in effect, paycheck to paycheck to I'm going to put a little bit away, that, true, that also helps propel the industry. Lots of things going on as a result of that. Firstly, because investing has long globalized itself, there's a lot of complexity from that decision of a portfolio manager to I want to invest in this to it actually showing up in the portfolio and being reported back to the actual asset owner, whether that's an individual or an institution. So we see growth in actually linking Those things together, everything from pre trade analysis all the way through to uh, the actual reporting that comes back to them. There's a lot of friction in the system. um, And that friction becomes important to eliminate, particularly as regulators take down trading times. What we're all familiar with is, you know, it used to be five days to settle equity. Now it's three days. The debate now is around two, one, and zero. There's lots of instruments right now, though, that, you know, if you think about things like traded bank loans, you know, we're looking out there for 15, 16, 18 days of settlement. Regulators don't like that. We shouldn't like that as a uh, as participants in the market. So to get that kind of settlement period down, you need technology. And some would say, what do you mean? I mean, we're, we're digital already. But the true digitization of what we do. So if you think about it, a big part of what we do is I call us we're in the securities movement and control business and, you know, a security is either moving because it's there's some kind of transaction in place, or it's at rest and needs to be controlled and custodied. We do it today largely the way we did it 200 years ago, except it's not paper, it's in a book entry form. But if you think about it now, and what digitization enables us to do, it's actually going to enable us to basically tokenize everything. So we're no longer actually custodying the asset, but we're custodying basically the keys to that token or to that digital footprint there. It's got a great promise in terms of democratizing investments that are really not available to the general public. So you think about real estate investing, You know, right now that's for the wealthy and you typically you'll make investments in some kind of real estate partnership. There's a minimum to do that. Lots of paperwork around it. Well, why can't we take this building that I'm sitting in now and, and tokenize that? and break it up into little pieces. So, you know, it's got great promise. It's got great promise in terms of continuing to eliminate the frictional costs in the movement here. So, and we're at the very early innings on this. I mean, everybody talks about, well, oh, this game's been underway for a while. It's been largely underway in payments. And in terms of how are we going to pay, either retail or wholesale, securities movement is is a new frontier for this. So there's lots of open ground here, but it's something that I think will rapidly see the same kind of digital intervention as, as we've seen in the payment side. So for us, it was very important that we set this up um, as a separate division for a couple of reasons. One, it just we wanted a focus, real R and D focus on not do we do what are we doing today, but what should we be doing tomorrow? What if we were uh, designing this from a clean sheet of paper secondly we wanted to be in a position to actually disrupt ourselves i mean it's the old uh it's the defender's dilemma right if you're number one in market share you kind of like the way things are you don't really want somebody coming and saying hey i've got this idea that's going to disrupt everything uh because we know that you know we're, we're making lots of money off that so the idea is let's be prepared to Disrupt the market, and if required, disrupt ourselves. Love that.
0: Love the. I totally agree. Early days uh, and uh, so cannibalize yourself if that's what it takes. I also love the link back to inclusivity. Uh, some would say though that you know we've all this stakeholder capitalism doesn't it come at a cost? Uh, creating that tokenization does that ultimately slow growth down in some ways. Uh, what would you say to that? Is there is there actually a trade-off here between between growth and
1: and and inclusivity? I don't think so. Um, and I think that if you accept the premise that most investing is or should be, have a long-term horizon, then I think it becomes a lot easier to think this way. And you know, the, the, the irony of investing in this uh, supposed show, uh, focus on the short-term is that if you think about most investors, whether they're retail or institutions, They've got very long horizons here. The liabilities that they're trying to offset with these investment assets, it's a retirement fund. It's somebody saving for a child's education. It's a sovereign wealth fund saying, we want to put aside money for the next generation. So when you start to have timeframes like that, you recognize that the lens of things that you need to be concerned about actually necessarily grow. Yeah, can you get away with abusing a labor force for a quarter or a year? probably you can you can't get away with that and you're not going to be able to survive if in fact you have the reputation of an abusive employer or an employer that's you know not paying people properly so is that stakeholder capitalism that now we're starting to think about employees maybe i just think about it as you're opening the lens to a broader set of concerns similarly if you're ignoring the community in which you operate you know, just not spending any time thinking about what your corporate citizenship obligations are simply because you're saying I'm here to kind of exploit this place and get out. Again, if you if, if you got a quarter or a couple of years horizon, maybe, but over the long term, so to me, stakeholder capitalism is nothing more than a recognition that over the long term, the success of a company has more to do than just how many products are they gonna sell over the next couple of years? And I think if you start to think about it like that, you start to think about long-term growth in a very different way, that it needs to be just more uh, accommodating of all these different uh, stakeholders that are involved in what you do as a company.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And I love the unlock is the
1: perspective on duration. Maybe just a little bit more on ESG, I I do think this is changing the way investors invest and therefore the way capital is being allocated some evidence of this already we did a, a little bit of work in the run up to cop. We took a look at, at institutional portfolios and it, you know we took a snapshot of the portfolios in 2019 and a snapshot of the same essentially the same portfolios meaning that they were for the same clients, et cetera. And what you found was that the carbon content if you will, had dropped by almost 30 percent. In the portfolio recognizing by the way all the things i've said earlier that it, this is hard to measure but if it was wrong it was wrong in both cases so let's just say that direction it was correct lower carbon kinds of assets have become more valuable than higher carbon assets makes sense but the other half actually was in fact not related to that it was that the same companies had taken steps and had lowered the carbon intensity of what they're doing. So to me, that is suggesting that what we're seeing now is the beginning of what should be a fairly significant reallocation of capital.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And uh, these are all market phenomena we're talking about. The, the, you said, what about the policy unlocks? What's, uh, what do you see coming down uh, the line here and what's needed to come down the line in terms of creating that, that sustainable, inclusive growth uh, cycle?
1: You know, um, I mean, I'll start with carbon, and this, this is not a, in some circles, this is not a popular statement, but I think the biggest unlock we need there is we need a global price on carbon, right? Because ultimately we have to recognize what carbon is. It's a massive externality that's been pushed out on this. I mean, if Milton Friedman were alive, he'd be a climate warrior here, because I think he'd be saying that, you know, we need to internalize these externalities. So that is an unlock that, you know, we're, we're moving towards it, but we're not completely moving towards it as long as and this is a global problem and carbon doesn't know borders, right? So it, it's until we have a uniform way of looking at that, whatever we do is going to be inefficient, including the allocation of capital. You know, an area where we have seen an unlock that, you know, I think that, that the Biden administration should be proud of is the Department of Labor. They oversee the retirement funds of U.S. investors and they have They've changed their fiduciary rules such that climate kinds of portfolios and ESG portfolios can actually be a factor in the choosing of an investment. This is really important because it enables, I mean, that's a big, big uh, block of money. So all of the retirement investments now in the U.S. are eligible to be invested in an ESG-friendly kind of way, which I think is a, was a great unlock. Mm-hmm. So more to do, I think policymakers, particularly Again, going back to climate post COP, they now have to catch up. They were out in front and business was being dragged along. I think business now has moved ahead. Lots of people have moved ahead and now the policymakers need to catch up and they will. They will, I'm confident in that.
0: Pricing in that externality. Well, thank you, Ron. This is a this is an honor. This is one Bostonian to another. It's great to see you. And I think this is a very robust conversation that's going to put a new frame on what is the actual integration of sustainability, inclusive growth in a long-term perspective, both from a, from an investor's point of view and ultimately from management. So I really want to thank you today for spending your time with us.
1: Oh, thanks, Jonathan. I enjoyed it.
2: Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren.
0: The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.